0: In an experiment, oh, what is life so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data's speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Nature.
2: Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week,
3: a way to reverse aging in mice. And an incredibly precise measurement of a core physics constant. I'm Noah Baker.
2: And I'm Nick Howe. How do we age? We're all familiar with the concept. For better, or well worse, the arrow of time marches forward. But defining what actually is ageing is pretty tricky.
4: Uh, Well, people have been asking what is ageing for thousands of years, uh, and it's still debated at conferences.
2: This is David Sinclair, a researcher of ageing at Harvard University. For him, understanding ageing could be key to finding a way to stop the relentless march of time. And one aspect of ageing, down at the cellular level, may hold the answer epigenetics.
4: One of the hallmarks of aging is epigenetic change. So when we're young, our epigenome is pristine. It's set with genes on and genes that are off that maintain a cell's identity. For instance, a nerve cell in the brain will have a certain gene expression pattern that's different than a liver cell. And this pattern must be maintained throughout life for that organ and that tissue to work optimally. But over time, due to reasons that we're still trying to understand, this epigenome and gene regulation becomes dysfunctional. We have what's called epigenetic noise. And the beautiful and functional gene expression pattern in, say, a nerve cell, will eventually be lost. And the cell loses its identity. It doesn't function like it did when it was young. It's
2: long been known that epigenetic markers on the genome can be used to show a person's age this is their epigenetic clock. But many scientists have been wondering, if this epigenetic clock shows how old a person is, can you turn it back? Could you, for lack of a better term, reverse ageing?
4: Yeah, often people think it's crazy to talk about reversing ageing. We're struggling even to slow this process down. But we have a couple of experiments that have been done in history that show us that you can reset the age of a cell.
2: One of these experiments is well known to many scientists. It's what allows them to produce stem cells from normal adult cells. If you take a mammalian cell and insert four Yamanaka genes, also known as Yamanaka factors, you can revert them into a type of stem cell that has the potential to become any kind of cell. What's more, in these cells, that epigenetic clock it's turned back to zero. Given that, the cells could theoretically become younger once again.
4: But if you do that in a person, this would turn into a tumour. So what you want to try to do, we tried to do, is to take the age of the cell to a certain point where it's young again, but not so young that it loses its identity.
2: A stem cell with no identity could ultimately differentiate into a number of different cell types. And this is a problem, because you don't want your liver cells, for instance, to turn into, well, something else. So the question is, is it possible to return a cell to a point where it is, well, young-ish? To find out, David looked at a type of nerve cell in the back of the eye called a retinal ganglion cell. He chose these because they're important for vision, and when they're young, they have an ability to regenerate which is lost as they become mature. So if David and his colleagues were successful in almost resetting that clock, they'd be able to see if the cells could regenerate. As the Yamanaka factors are able to turn the clock back to zero, David wondered if some combination of them may be able to turn a cell's clock back to almost zero. So he and his team tried this out in cultivated cells in a dish.
4: And we had a lot of trial and error, mostly error. The breakthrough was the finding that if we took the Yamanaka factors, but we didn't use all four of them, we just used three of them, those genes worked fantastically to reset the age of cells in the dish.
2: These three Yamanaka factors, nicknamed OSK, didn't just work in cells in a dish. David and his team used viruses to introduce the Yamanaka factors into the eyes of mice with damaged retinal ganglion cells, too old to repair themselves and regrow. And well, it looks like the cells regained their youth.
4: Seeing those optic nerves regrow was a remarkable moment in my career and for the lab. Wan Cheng Lu, the student who was doing the work, just texted me a picture of the eyes of the optic nerves and sent it to me. And he said, David, do you see what I see? And I said... Yeah, I can't believe it. It, It's amazing.
2: The mice's eye cells weren't just rejuvenated. According to their epigenome, they were actually younger. Their epigenome was reset-ish. The damaged eyes were repaired and vision was restored. And not only that, the team were able to use the same technique to restore the sight of mice who had lost their vision as a result of old age. If nothing else, this experiment shows that epigenetics is not just a
4: marker of ageing. It plays a functional role, both in the ageing process and, apparently, in its reversal.
2: David is quite excited about these results, as they show the potential for therapeutic applications. If this technique works in mice, then maybe also one day in humans. But he's not the only one. Other scientists in the field are also enthusiastic.
0: When I first read the paper, I was very excited because having worked in this field of visual repair and regeneration for some time now, it's not often that a paper comes along that establishes a new paradigm.
2: This is Andrew Huberman, who reviewed the new paper and wrote a News & Views article
0: about it for Nature. I think the real excitement of this paper also comes from the fact that retinal ganglion cells even though they're in the eye most people don't realize this but the the retina is actually part of the central nervous system it's actually a piece of the brain that gets extruded out from the brain and skull early in development and therefore as a central nervous system neurons the even though the the results are very exciting for the field of vision they also point to the possibility that osk is going to be a therapeutic for other types of central nervous system damage so
2: you might be thinking right now Okay, this sounds great, but it's in mice. Well, Andrew is actually pretty confident that we might see these three Yamanaka factors, OSK, rolled out to humans
0: sooner than
2: you might think.
0: I'm confident that in the next two years or three years that therapies like OSK and others for other cell types in the eye are going to achieve at least halting of vision loss, if not reversal of vision loss in humans. And I say that based on the center of mass of a lot of papers, not just the the Sinclair and colleagues' paper. But things are looking very optimistic for the field of visual repair and regeneration.
2: There are obviously a few kinks to be worked out. For example, humans have a protective layer that researchers will need to get through in order to introduce the Yamanaka factors to the retinal ganglion cells but Andrew feels confident that issues such as this can be resolved. For David, he's excited about the implications for not just these cells, but the prospect that we could work out how cells are made young overall.
4: The fact that we can reset the age of a cell and make it functional again, and have the right genes turn on and off as though they were young again, implies that there's a template, a store of information that's youthful, much like a backup copy of software that we can reset. The big question really is, where is that information stored? Where is that template? How does the cell find it during this reprogramming method? And this is one of the most important questions, I think, that now needs to be solved.
2: That was David Sinclair from Harvard University in the US. You also heard from Andrew Huberman from Stanford University, also in the US. If you want to know more about regenerating cells in mice's eyes and the implications, then we've got a video about it and Nature has a range of articles on the topic. We'll put a link to
3: all of them in the show notes. Time now for Coronapod when we discuss the latest coronavirus news. Joining me this week as ever is Benjamin Thompson and on the phone is Heidi Ledford. How are you both?
1: I'm good, thanks.
5: Yeah, doing good, thanks, Nora. It's a bit of a switch round from me saying hello to you rather than you saying hello to me, but yeah, good to be here.
3: So this week we're going to talk about vaccines, as we often talk about vaccines, and in particular that's because we woke up this morning to what feels like pretty darn big news, especially in the UK, which is that the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine has been approved by the British regulator, the MHRA, to start being rolled out as early as next week, which is kind of massive news from everyone that's been sitting waiting for vaccines, and it causes a load of questions to be asked, you know, is this ready? Is this safe? What does this mean? Why does this regulator say yes? Why haven't other regulators said no? To start kind of Teasing into that, we have Heidi. Heidi, what does an emergency use authorization mean? Because that's what's happened here. This has been an emergency use authorization, right?
1: Yeah, it can mean different things in different countries as far as the specifics go. And some countries are more specific about their requirements to get an emergency use authorization than others. But in general, it means that the regulators have looked at this and decided that it is safe and effective enough to warrant rolling it out quickly because there is some sort of emergency situation like a pandemic without necessarily going through all of the usual hoops that a drug or a vaccine application would normally go through. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they've shortcut gathering safety data or analyzing that data. A lot of times what it can mean is some of the bureaucratic steps have been shortened. I think in the MHRA case, for example, They've often mentioned that they're doing a sort of rolling admission where they look at the data frequently along the way instead of waiting for the end and then doing everything all at once.
5: Heidi, you've been writing about kind of the pharmaceutical industry for a long time and and these emergency use applications are used with kind of drugs. But I mean, how rare are they for vaccines?
1: I don't think they're very common for vaccines at all. I think there may be one example of one. You know, we have seen them used quite a bit with a certain amount of controversy around them as well for therapeutics during the pandemic. And, you know, in the United States, which is maybe the situation that I'm most familiar with, you know, we saw emergency youth authorizations issued for controversial treatments like hydroxychloroquine, which, you know, raised a lot of concerns that maybe the the standards were a bit too low in terms of the evidence needed for an emergency use authorization. That was a sort of an infamous case where the regulators ended up withdrawing the authorization later on. As far as the vaccine goes, if you stay within the United States and you compare the procedure for hydroxychloroquine emergency use authorization versus a vaccine, they're being much, much more rigorous, they're requiring much more data, they're being quite transparent about how they're analysing the data and so on. And, you know, that's a step that you could argue is absolutely necessary, because in this case, you're talking about giving a vaccine to people who would otherwise be healthy. So you have to do these extra steps, as compared to a situation for a therapeutic.
3: Yeah, this is something that we've discussed before, a vaccine is a somewhat different beast to a therapeutic, because they're going to healthy people. And so there's an even higher bar of safety, but also bar of efficacy that people look for. The regulators we're talking about here, you know, these are all independent bodies from the pharmaceutical companies that are producing these, like necessarily they're independent and they're different. So in the States, you've got the FDA, in the UK, you've got the MHRA. In Europe more broadly, you've got the EMA, all of these different regulators will have different sets of goals they want to reach. But overall, they're all looking for the same things. They were looking for robust evidence of safety, and they're looking for robust evidence of efficacy. And that's the bar that has been reached today for the Pfizer vaccine in the UK.
1: Yeah, the UK is the first one to to authorise the Pfizer vaccine. But next week, the FDA is going to be discussing it in a meeting. And, you know, there are some people who predict that the FDA will issue a a similar decision within a couple of days of that meeting, potentially.
3: It's also worth noting that the Moderna vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine are also being submitted to regulators to be looked at over December. So this is the first of a slew, potentially, of other vaccines that may be regulated for emergency use before the end of the year.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's amazing how quickly the world changed. I mean, and I was sort of joking, the other day about the AstraZeneca vaccine, which came in with some mixed results from the trial, but overall, you know, likely over a 60% efficacy there. And how that was almost disappointing, because we had gotten used to the two vaccines that announced, you know, over 90% before that, whereas a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, I would have been thrilled with 60 to 70% efficacy, right? So yeah, we've all kind of gotten used to it, I think, the fact that these vaccines are coming along.
5: I mean, what happens now, do we know, then? certainly in the UK, then with this Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, what, what are the next steps?
1: I think they're planning to roll them out quite quickly. I mean, the news reports have said that they plan to do it as early as next week. And I think we've heard a few anecdotal reports from healthcare workers as well saying, yep, you know, they're being prepped and ready to get it out. You guys may know better than me. I'm not sure how they're prioritizing it in the UK. So yesterday in the US, the CDC, you know, recommended that COVID vaccines be given to healthcare workers and particularly residents of nursing homes or care homes first. I would sort of assume the UK would do something similar.
3: That is exactly what it's currently suggesting. So to start with, it's healthcare workers, people over the age of 80 and in care homes are likely to receive the vaccine more quickly. And then everyone over the age of 50 and younger people that have underlying health conditions. So there is a kind of a staged plan to release this vaccine. And we've had the UK health minister saying that he thinks, he believes that with vaccines coming online, that by Easter, we'll be able to return to a relatively normal summer Now, that's quite a qualified statement in lots of different Mm -hmm. ways, but that is what they're kind of saying now.
1: For me, um, one thing I realized is, I mean, I know we don't have enough vaccines to go around yet and it will be some time before we can really, you know, vaccinate a huge swath of the population. But to have some kind of vaccination program in place before we hit fully into Christmas and the holiday season, when you know people are going to be getting together and traveling And, you know, in the United States, which went into Thanksgiving already with some areas having hospitals overwhelmed, then millions of people traveled for Thanksgiving, then you're going to have Christmas with people traveling, plus just the winter in general and people indoors, like to have a vaccine around for anyone during that time, to me, it feels like a huge step.
3: I think it's probably worth noting at this point as well that the the announcement that we're talking about today is the first in the quote unquote Western world. But there are vaccines that have been approved elsewhere in the world. So in China, regulators have approved vaccines for limited use, as they have also in Russia. That's the CanSinoBio vaccine in China, and then Sputnik 5 in in Russia. And so, you know, this isn't completely unprecedented, but it is pretty unprecedented for the westernized, in inverted commas, world.
1: It is. And as I understand I think we have quite a bit more data about, you know, for example, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine than we do for the Chinese vaccine and, and the Russian Sputnik vaccine. As I understand it, those trials are still uh, a bit earlier and smaller. But, you know, of course, there's still a lot, a long way to go. And, and they have to be able to deploy these things effectively and equitably. And there are still all sorts of things that could happen. But I keep thinking I just didn't expect us to have this ready now, <laughs> you know, to be deployed. And it, And it's nice to hear that it might be.
5: I mean, qualified excitement all around, I think it's fair to say. But, I mean, is there any potential downside to these emergency use applications in terms of trials that are still going on and things like that? I mean, is there another side to it that we need to consider?
1: Yeah, that gets quite messy because once you have good, efficacious apparently safe vaccines that are available to the public, it becomes very difficult to continue, you know, to completion the trials that were ongoing for the vaccines that are now being approved. You know, when you do these trials, typically you have a group of people who get the vaccine, and then a group of people who get the placebo, and then you compare the two. But once you find out that the vaccine is working really well, often it then becomes an ethical question. How do you then justify continuing to give the other group the placebo in that you're effectively withholding a treatment or a vaccine in this case that could benefit them. And so it gets you into a sticky ethical question. So then the question becomes with these trials for Pfizer and Moderna, which we were looking at early endpoints, they haven't really completed all the way to the end. They haven't enrolled as many people as they were going to yet, but we've already gotten these clear signs of efficacy and early indications of safety. How do you maintain that control group now? Because uh, you'd like to be able to continue gathering data from these people. You'd like to know a little bit more about long-term safety. You would like to know a little bit more about how durable the immunity may be. All sorts of questions that you would really like to have a control group for, but you can't necessarily order these people, you know, to stay in the placebo arm. I mean, I think the bottom line, honestly, is that clinical research can be quite messy. You know, this isn't a bench experiment where you have all of your controls and experimental groups nicely lined up. You have to sort of deal with the situation you're given. You don't you certainly don't want to hold back a vaccine, you know, waiting for just more perfect data <laughs> than what you've already got, right? You've got to set your threshold and then go forward when you can in a situation like this.
3: I mean, the phrase perfect is the enemy of good comes to mind. But also, you think when it's dealing with people's lives or people's medical well being, then perfect seems a reasonable thing to aim for in other ways, you know, depending on which, you know, which ethical hat you wear when you're looking at it?
1: Yeah, and maybe it's some sloppy phrasing, because I think you're weighing perfect for two different groups, right? There's perfect for the people in the placebo arm, and then perfect for the rest of society. And maybe you would like to have that perfect data to benefit society. But how much can you ask of these people in the placebo arm to really give of themselves oh it's a really sticky I mean you always have this in medical research and when people are participating in clinical trials like how to balance their needs versus you know the benefits for society
5: well what about other vaccine trials Heidi I mean I can imagine someone saying well I don't want to be part of the trial I want one that's already had the approval and that could you know mess things up there
1: that's a really important question, too, because, you know, at the moment, it seems almost like we're rolling in vaccines. We've got, you know, vaccines looking good, but we have a world to vaccinate and, you know, we need as many working vaccines as we can get. So it is going to make it more difficult to test these now, because, again, how do you withhold a vaccine that's already been shown to be potentially very effective and safe so that you can test this other vaccine that may or may not work. That does become complicated. I think likely the pool of potential volunteers for those clinical trials is going to shrink quite a bit.
3: One thing that I'm hearing discussed a lot, just even anecdotally on my social media feeds amongst friends, but I'm also seeing in the media, is a lot of discussion of the novelty of this. So we've talked a load of times about how amazing it is that this has happened so incredibly quickly. But people are often very concerned about things that happen for the first time. No one wants to be the guinea pig. If it's happened really quickly, then does that mean something's bad? I think it's worth pointing out that yes, this is kind of unprecedented in the world of vaccine research. And yes, maybe data is a little bit messy in clinical research is a little bit messy. But that doesn't mean that people like you that have studied clinical research for a long period of time necessarily think it's that out of the ordinary, despite it being new. You know, it's not like things are drastically different from what you'd expect. There aren't red flags popping up.
1: No, I mean, the slow part of all of this was carrying out the clinical trials in a sort of progressed and safe Way, right? With the smaller trial initially, and then you get a little bigger, and you get a little bigger, and you have your placebo and your control groups and all that sort of thing. Those boxes were all ticked. A lot of the speed up has come, one from the technology, and that's why we're seeing, you know, particularly these two mRNA vaccines, for example, report out quite quickly. And that was because they were able to design the vaccine and produce it in a quality suitable for testing in people really quickly. So that's been one advantage. And then another is that, you know, the regulators have said that they are giving this full attention you know some regulators are evaluating this on a rolling basis they're looking at the data as it comes in they're sort of quick to make sure that nothing gets hung up on bureaucratic hurdles and 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 so on so that's been you know really where a lot of the speed has come from we would love to have 5 years of safety data <laughs> right but that's rarely the case that you're going to get you know something like that when you need to roll something out right I have not seen red flags. And I think a lot of the panic, particularly in the United States has come from politicians kind of trying to stir the pot, right? So we've seen, for example, President Trump really push on the FDA and still pushing on the FDA. So, you know, he's holding meetings and such with FDA officials to ask, why haven't we approved this already? And that created a lot of worry that he was gonna rush through an approval. But what we've seen so far is the FDA really hold on this and say, no, we're waiting until we do this public meeting and everyone will get to hear us discuss the data and what we have, and what we know, and what we don't know, and then we will issue our decision, you know, and so, so far, I would say that's, that's held.
3: It occurs to me that if we look at what's happened here, when you get regulators full attention, when you get them looking at rolling data, as things comes through, there may well be a lot of people that have been going, God, I need this drug for the last 10 years, and then you see what's possible, like, I mean, I can imagine there would be reactions in different ways to other people in the medical community.
1: For some reason, that was one of the first thoughts I had this morning when the MHRA decision came through, is I thought, you know, there's so many patient advocates who could be out there just screaming into their pillows about how quickly this moved versus how long, you know, they had to wait for all those bureaucratic hurdles to be jumped, you know, for for their drug of interest or their disease of interest. Some of it, I'm sure, is probably pandemic-specific. I mean, it takes a lot of resources to have you know regulators there ready to go through everything immediately as it comes in and to, to sort of all hands on deck kind of situation and and I know in the US the FDA does have some mechanisms for trying to target resources and and to speed up those sorts of processes for therapies that are particularly meaningful that may treat a disease that has no other therapy or you know so on so there are those mechanisms but I'm sure people will be looking at this and referring to it in the future when they say why can't you hurry up
3: I guess I have one final thought as well, which I think is something that we may end up talking about in the future more, which is that almost all vaccines that exist do have some vanishingly rare side effects that appear that are quite severe. And it is not unreasonable to think that any vaccine could have that. But quite often, they may be one person in a million people that have this kind of reaction, or one person in you know 700,000 people or something. In a world where you suddenly, in an unprecedented way, try to vaccinate a billion people, then those rare effects potentially get amplified quite significantly, because a lot of people have those effects at once. And are people worried about what this could mean for people's trust in vaccines, what people could respond to, you know, is this a thing that people are concerned about or planning for?
1: I think they're super worried about it. Yeah, we already have in some countries a fairly high percentage of people who are hesitant about taking vaccines in general. Then you add to that the notion that this has been, quote unquote, sped up. And then you add to that, you know, that you get these reports maybe on social media of, oh, I had the vaccine and now I've been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis or, you know, something along those lines, right? The potential, I think, for these ad hoc reports here and there to be really amplified and just broadcast through the world and and really feed into all those fears that are already there for quite a few people. uh, is very real. That's something I think researchers are quite concerned about. How they're planning to tackle it, I'm not quite sure. You know, I mean, they always say, oh, transparency and so on is really key and open discussion, etc. But the power of the sphere, you know, is really strong and the power of social media to just ramp it right up is really strong.
3: Mm, I feel like it's going to be something for the media to watch out for in the future about how to carefully report on such things.
1: I think so. I mean, you know, regulators will be monitoring these, right? So there are avenues in many countries for physicians and, you know, investigators and so on to report adverse events that occur after a treatment was given. And then they, you know, they have big databases and so on to, to take a look at this. So, you know, regulators will be watching to see when something rises to the level of concern. But the big worry is that people won't wait for that you know they'll they'll read facebook
3: and twitter okay well we are not going to stop talking about vaccines don't worry listeners you're going to hear more of it as time goes on because this is a long story but for now heidi thank you very much i'm going to decide this was a good news story for today despite all of our many caveats ben thanks again for joining us both it feels nice to sign off Coronapod.
1: (laughs) thanks so much for having me
3: thanks
5: Noah. great to be here
3: and there'll be more
2: from coronapod next week Up next, we'll have the research highlights. But before then, just time to tell you about a podcast extra we've got coming out this week. In it, Erna Solberg, the Prime Minister of Norway, speaks with Springer Nature's Editor-in-Chief, Sir Philip Campbell, about how to create a sustainable ocean economy. Look out for that in your podcast feed. Now though, back to this week's show, and as promised, it's time for the research highlights, read by Dan Fox.
6: The prehistoric shark, a Todus megalodon, was an awe-inspiring beast, measuring up to three times the length of the modern great white shark. But even the mightiest of predators were babies once, and they may have spent their early lives in prehistoric nurseries. Researchers have compared megalodon teeth collected at nine sites around the world and found that a disproportionate number of teeth found at five of those sites were from young sharks, suggesting those sites represent megalodon nurseries. Nurseries are protected areas with shallow waters and abundant prey where young sharks can develop in relative safety. Large species of shark persist when the survival rate of juveniles is high, and nurseries make this possible. The downside is that species can become dependent on finding suitable nursery sites, which can be disrupted by sea level changes. Think your teeth into that research in full at Biology Letters. Mud volcanoes are an unpredictable phenomenon where trapped gas causes sediments to flow like water, rising and erupting dangerously. But new research may help with prediction of these volatile events. More than 1,000 of these volcanoes have been identified around the world, both on land and underwater. The most famous eruption, known as Lucy, took place in Indonesia in 2006, where nearby villages were buried in thick mud. Now, researchers have studied a mud volcano in the Caspian Sea, the area with the densest distribution of such volcanoes anywhere in the world. The team simulated how methane becoming trapped in the sediments of the site could trigger changes that cause mud to form 35 kilometers beneath the seafloor and begin rising. They calculate that it takes around 100 years for the mud to reach the seafloor and erupt. The researchers hope that understanding what causes the mud to form and how long it takes to reach the surface could help improve prediction of future eruptions. Read that paper in full at the Journal of Geophysical Research.
3: Next up, Adam Levy is here to tell us about a number that's close to
7: physicists' hearts. There are a few numbers that make our universe what it is. These are the numbers that appear in physicists' essential equations, telling us, for example, how strong forces are, These constants are so fundamental to our understanding of the laws of nature that, well, they're called the fundamental constants. And right near the top of the list is the fine structure constant.
8: The fine structure constant, in my opinion, is one of the most important fundamental constants of physics.
7: This is physicist Saida Galachi. For decades, physicists have been improving on measurements of the fine structure constant, which
2: characterises the strength of one of the four fundamental forces,
7: electromagnetism. This is Holger Muller, who, like Saida, is fascinated by the fine structure constant. Over the years, researchers have honed methods to measure it as precisely as possible. One of the standard ways to get at the fine structure constant is by carefully watching atoms after they absorb a light particle, a photon, When an atom absorbs a photon, it also absorbs its momentum, and so recoils a tiny bit. Researchers can then carefully measure this recoil velocity.
8: This recoil velocity depends on the mass of the atom. And by using this, we can deduce a value of the fine structure constant.
7: That might sound simple enough. Shine some light at some atoms and then check how fast they're moving after... But if you want to measure the fine structure constant with record-breaking precision, which Saida has done in a paper out in this week's Nature, this is anything but a simple experiment.
8: You have to control many aspects. You have to control laser beams, their alignment, their frequency. Everything
7: has to be set up carefully. Intricately accounting for all the underlying physics of the experiment. All
8: parasitic field, you have to control many things in order to keep atoms in ideal configuration.
7: Holger, who didn't work on this study, is struck by what Saida and her collaborators were able to achieve.
2: Every improvement has been the result of years of work, and this has been going on for decades. And
9: they improved it even further. That is an achievement, right?
7: So just how accurately was Saida able to measure the fine structure constant?
8: The accuracy now is 81 parts per trillion.
7: 81 parts per trillion. If you, like me, struggle to visualise this level of accuracy, well, it's equivalent to... Measuring the distance from London to New York to 0.45 millimetres. Of course, physicists like Holger and Saida don't just measure the fine structure constant to outdo each other. Knowing this number as accurately as possible can help us understand the laws of nature better, and perhaps improve upon the crowning achievement of theoretical physics, the standard model of particle physics.
8: The main goal of this experiment is to test the standard model.
7: The standard model has had many successes and its incredible agreement with measurements of the fine structure constant is one of its most striking. But the standard model fails to explain everything we know about our universe. For one example, it says nothing about the elusive dark matter that we know must exist. And so physicists have been looking for some prediction, anything that the standard model gets wrong, in the hope that this would point out how to improve it. Today, one of the strongest signs of a crack in the standard model comes from muons, which you can think of as heavy electrons. There seems to be a disagreement between theory and a measurement of a core electromagnetic property of these particles.
2: And that disagreement is one of the strongest signs we have for physics beyond the standard model.
7: This potential new physics could maybe also be detected by precise measurement of the fine structure constant. But so far, in spite of the unprecedented precision of Saida's work, there are no surprises. Yet. This all means that this is nowhere near the end of the story for the fine structure constant. Both Holger and Saida are determined to keep improving measurements of this number in the hopes of understanding this fundamental constant as fundamentally as possible.
8: It's a part of my research. I have to do better. It's, it's, clear. it's, it's, it's a good satisfaction, and I, I hope that this work will motivate other groups to, to go further.
3: That was Seyda Galachi from Sorbonne University in France. You also heard from Holger Muller from the University of California, Berkeley in the US. We'll put a link to the paper, along with a News & Views article written by Holger, in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's time for this week's Briefing
2: Chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that we found in the Nature Briefing. Noah,
3: what have you got for this week's show? So yeah, I've got a story from the Washington Post this week, and it caught my eye in part because it's based in a bit of the world that I am quite close to, in Washington State, which is where my mother is from. But specifically, it's about a new way to think about climate, particularly climate action plans. And this has come from the Swinomish tribe and other Native American tribes in the area and actually around the United States, who have come up with a very different way to think about planning for the future and planning to mitigate the impacts of climate change change
2: okay so this is a plan that's come from the tribes themselves and you say it was like a different way what, what's different about their way of tackling
3: climate change So from the perspective of the Sonomas tribe and other Native American tribes, they believe that they can look at climate in a different way, what they describe as through the eyes of countless generations, by which they mean they can utilise the long-standing tradition of storytelling, of indigenous knowledge that's been passed down, to better understand how to mitigate for climate change in a holistic way. So... One thing that they raised in this article is that indigenous peoples have been witness to climate change in a way that is much more visceral, much more recognisable than others have. Part of this is because a lot of the lands that they've been left with were seen as unfavourable for settlers in the United States. And those bits of land are often particularly vulnerable to the effects of climate change, things like extreme weather events or perhaps it's on a floodplain where sea level rises, causing a problem. But equally, there's part of the tradition of the culture of these communities is inherently involved with connection with the land, connection with the seasons, connection with the wildlife and the environment itself. And so they have a closer understanding of how things have changed. And so therefore, maybe how to mitigate for that change in the future. So with climate change like this, quite unprecedented change... What is their sort of plan going forward? Yeah, so there's a couple of different ways that they're thinking about it. What's described in the in the story as a multi pronged strategy, which also I have to say is compared to the strategies of various countries and various states, and actually compared in this story quite favourably to those states, suggesting that these Native American tribes are coming up with far more comprehensive plans than various states are coming up with. Anyway, I digress. The basis of a lot of the discussion in this article is based on what is called indigenous health. And so this is this holistic approach that I was talking about. There are six different factors for indigenous health. Those particular factors are cultural use, community connections, self-determination, resiliency, transferring traditional knowledge across generations and natural resource security. Now, the idea is that by looking at these different indicators of health, you can try to work out how any action plan you come up with might be able to benefit multiple different aspects of your community in an intersectional way. This is all a lot of big words and a lot of sort of big concepts but I can give you an example to try to help you understand what it is that they're talking about here. So one example they've come up with is to establish a clam garden. So this is a particular type of native clam that is endangered in the area. So in order to create this clam garden various members of the community were surveyed to find out what sites might be useful. Three sites came up on the west side of their reservation and they discovered that one of them had actually been returned to the tribe after years in private hands and it had a really meaningful history from before it was in private hands elders talked about growing up and playing on the beach all day there and so by using this spot they were able to connect with part of their tribal identity part of their cultural identity it also involves creating a rock wall which can act as a coastal protection measure and can help return native little neck clams once they've created this clam garden you end up with a place which is both helping mitigate against rising sea levels as well as creating a space for elders to share stories and pass on tribal knowledge and all of those things are health indicators from those six health indicators I initially mentioned. The argument is that by trying to think in this holistic way about all the different ways in which something can benefit a land you engage communities with what you're doing. So
2: you said that this holistic plan that they've come up with has been compared in some cases quite favourably to states so are the things that can be learnt for more grander climate challenges across the globe?
3: So I think that one thing that is really being championed by these groups is to think about issues beyond just the core issue of climate change. So think about how something will impact a community in terms of its well-being, in terms of its economics within the community, jobs and so on, in terms of cultural identity. If you can think about how climate is going to affect all of these different areas and then build your policies with those things in mind, you might end up with more sustainable policies that feel like they're more engaged and come from the communities and being driven by community. The argument is when a community drives the change, then they're more likely to persist with it and stick with it and push it further.
2: Have climate scientists looked at the plans they've got? Have they said, like, this seems like a good idea?
3: One senior scientist with a group called the Climate Impact Group is quoted in this story as saying they're doing really innovative climate adaptation. They're way ahead of the curve and that really shouldn't be surprising because the tribes have shown tremendous leadership in climate adaptation and mitigation. I think the direct impacts of climate change on these tribes and their lands has been a real driver to get Indigenous communities moving on this issue for quite some time. And that's why now perhaps states are playing catch up a little bit because they're just getting to that point now. And that seems to be reflected by the scientists quoted in this piece.
2: Well, that's really interesting stuff, Noah. And this week, I also looked at something that's kind of close to my heart. I was looking into a story about pollination and this was in The Guardian and it was about a very unusual type of pollinator.
3: So unusual pollinators, what have I heard of? Of course, when you think about pollinators, you think of bees, maybe you think of birds that are push. Sometimes I feel like I've heard of pollinators that are little sort of bush babies act as pollinators what's the unusual pollinator this time
2: well in this story it's actually a lizard which is very very unusual and it's very very rare the first time a lizard was shown to be a pollinator of a plant was in 1977 and I think there's only been a couple of examples since then and as you mentioned there the things you think of they're bees they're birds they're insects there may be bats and stuff like that but lizards really aren't one that you would consider for it and it's certainly not ones that the scientists initially considered when they were trying to work out what pollinates this weird
3: plant which was sort of the emphasis to start looking into this i have so many questions but my first one is like again if i think about pollinators Pollen's like little dust, basically. That's probably not a very like a very good botanical <laughs> term, but pollen's basically dust. Um, but I feel like it needs to like stick to some hairy bits because most of the pollinators I think of have little hairy bits that gets pollen stuck on them. Lizards aren't hairy at all. How you know does it get stuck on their noses? Basically. <laughs> so essentially,
2: what this is is these lizards will actually feed on nectar in this particular plant and they will get the pollen stuck on their nose and then when they feed on nectar in the next such plant that pollen will then be transferred to the plant thus pollinating it and uh, what i will say is that when you talk about things being pollinators especially in this field and i know this from my past like you have to be really careful when saying something is a pollinator because lots of things like visit plants but to actually pollinate it means you have to have that transfer of pollen from one plant to the reproductive parts of another plant. And that's what the scientists involved in this story have shown for this lizard. But it was quite an ordeal. And so to start with, like they found a very strange flower, which was a green-coloured flower that was quite close to the ground. And as you know, most flowers are brightly coloured and quite high up to attract things like insects and birds and stuff like that. So they were wondering what pollinates this and originally they thought it might be a small mammal like a shrew which sometimes pollinate things but they actually found that it was a lizard which was really really surprising but they went to great pains to show that it was actually transferring the pollen from it but yeah it just stuck to their nose
8: in
3: the end. I love that you say I know about this from my past like my past as a as a bee scientist we should just clarify there it's not because of some kind of seedy plant-based past that you have. So I'm interested in the length that they went to. Are we talking they put little, like, coloured dyed pollen so they could see which pollen went from where to where? How do you prove that a lizard is pollinating, not just getting covered in pollen when it eats?
2: Well, the first thing to do is to show that it's actually going to the flower in the first place. And so the way they did that was by putting camera traps there. But lizards, they're cold-blooded, and most camera traps are actually triggered by heat. So they had to adjust their camera to make sure the lizard was actually triggering it. And because the plant was so low to the ground as well, they had to almost dig the camera into the ground to make sure that it was capturing it. But once they saw that the lizards were doing it, they did exactly as you said, and they used like coloured dyes to make sure they could see the pollen literally being transferred from one plant to another. And they also did something called exclusion experiments, which is where you stop the lizards pollinating the plants. And when they did that, the fruiting of the plant fell by 95% without the lizards being there to pollinate so it seems like there's pretty good evidence for this lizard being a pollinator and this would be the second only time that a plant is using a lizard as its primary pollinator so it may use other things but the lizard seems to be the key thing for pollinating this plant and It's really interesting and it opens up the possibility that maybe there are other plants like this that we just don't see or don't notice because, as I say, this one was green, it was close to the ground, it was quite well camouflaged, not very good for attracting insects, but maybe great for attracting lizards and stuff like that. So maybe there are other strange plants that we've never even noticed that have similar sort of strange pollinator dynamics. But I think that's more or less all we've got time for this week on The Briefing Chat. But thank you so much for talking to me, Noah. And listeners, if you'd like to know more about all the stories we discussed, then you'll find links to them in the show notes. And if you want more stories like this, but delivered straight to your inbox, then make sure you sign up to The Nature Briefing. We'll put a link in the show notes on where to do just that.
3: And that's all for this week. But before we go, I just wanted to remind you that you can check out the video we've made about the scientists claiming to have reversed ageing in mice. It's over on our YouTube channel. And we'll put a link in the show notes.
2: And as always, if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Twitter at Nature Podcast. Or you can email us at podcastnature.com. At I'm Nick Al. And I'm Noah Baker.
3: Thanks for listening.